0: Fun watching them go. How are you out there this morning? Amen. God's good. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's get ready for the Word this morning. Let's settle our spirits down and get focused. Worship prepares us for the Word. So the more we worship and enter into His presence, the more the good ground of our heart is opened up. To receive the word, amen. Father, I pray that the soil of our heart would be prepared to receive your word this morning, Lord, that as it went forth, it would produce changes in us, Lord, change us from the inside out. Father, only your word can change us. Philosophy and doctrine and willpower can't change us, but your word can change us. So we mix your word with faith this morning and good ground, and we ask that it would produce fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name and the church said. We're in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, preaching our way through the book of Philippians. We've seen the Apostle Paul, he's under house arrest for the heinous crime of preaching the gospel. And uh, the injustice of it is uh, hard to swallow, yet Paul has maintained his joy. How many of you have ever been through some real hard stuff in life? Raise your hand. How many of you wish that you knew how to maintain your joy in those situations a little better? Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes it takes me a while to catch my balance sometimes when life hits me and you, you, you get hit by the proverbial dump truck and you're run over and your first response is in hallelujah. God is good. It's not to sing like we sang this morning. You're my first love. It's more like, hey, where were you? Help why? People walk around going, why me? Why me? Why me? And the answer is, why not me? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Nothing special about me. If there's anything about me that demands correction or judgment, why not me? I know you don't get many amens preaching like that. But uh, we're here in Philippians chapter three. Paul is maintaining his joy. He's ministering to the Philippian church. Um, I'm going to read verse seven as a little recap. But uh, our new material is verse nine through eleven. So let's jump into the word this morning. Paul says this: "But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Beautiful. More than that, I count all things. Say all things. All things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. There it is again. And count them but rubbish. If you're reading the King James, you're getting the dung there. I count them all as dung. You don't need to do a Greek word study on the word dung. It means what you think it means. Paul says, I'm counting everything I accomplished, everything I have did, all my religious achievements as dung, rubbish, garbage, they're worthless to me so that I might gain Christ, beautiful, our new material, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Just a beautiful expression out of Paul's heart, one that bristles with hope, with uh, joy in the midst of his house arrest and the injustice of him being incarcerated uh, and giving an account for doing good things. The Romans want to test him to see if he's an insurrectionist. The Jews and the leadership there want him dead because they see him as a blasphemer. Yet Paul is full of the Spirit of God. He's full of joy, and it overflows from him, and we catch, uh, we catch it as he pours it out in the Philippian church here. Now, a, a bit of a recap here when we looked at verse 7. Paul counted all of his past achievements as loss, as dung, Why? Because he saw it as a great trade, a great exchange for knowing Christ, realizing that, you know, uh, he'd suffered the loss of everything he'd accomplished up to that point. And we talked about what Paul had accomplished in the natural, his spiritual pedigree, if you will. He was a a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was, uh, you know, using his zeal to persecute the church. He had fulfilled all the customs, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, I'm a Jew of Jews. I follow all the rules. I know all the customs. If you look up Jewish in the encyclopedia, there's going to be a picture of me. But he says, you know what, all that religious stuff, all that I've accomplished, all you know, that men say about me and the accolades and the fact that they couldn't find any fault in me. It's all worthless to me because it's a, I want to exchange that, that I may know Christ. We can't have religion and we can't have legalism and we can't have self. Uh, you know, achievements that we rest on and have Jesus at the same time. We've got to exchange one for the other. Paul was happy to make that exchange. Now, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things. I'm not sure any of us in the Western church can say that. You know, there are some places where to become a Christian in the Middle East, in uh, North Korea, in, in China. There are some places where it costs you everything. It costs you, you know, friends and family and all these things. And in the West here, I'm not sure any of us can say I've suffered the loss of all things. You know, and the truth is, as I begin to think about this, many times we see the sacrifices of the early church fathers and the patriarchs and what Moses went through and what Abraham went through and, and what Paul did. And, and I think, you know, so many people think, well, I, I should do that, too. I should, you know, I should give up everything and I should sell all I've got and I should go on a missionary journey. Not so fast. Did God call you to do that? Sometimes God hasn't called us to do with some of the disciples and the apostles and the patriarchs have done. But listen to me, just because we haven't been asked to do it, we should keep our hearts in a state where if he does ask, we are willing to do it. We've got to be very careful that we don't allow our blessings to become idols. Because very quickly, you could say, oh, no, I'm so thankful for the blessing. And then all of a sudden, we're we're more into the blessing than the blesser. And the blesser says, put that down. I got something for you to do. And we say, oh, no, 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 no. I got this and I got this. And I'm happy with this. Just leave me alone. We've got to be willing to let go, even if he's never asked. I'm thankful that, you know, we're blessed and that we have, blessings and all these things. Are anybody thankful for the blessings in your life? Amen. Do you, do you like going home and, you know, slipping into a bed and there's heat on? Amen. There's food in the refrigerator. Look, I, I mean, I'm getting older. For me, it's just if I go to bed with a full belly under a nice comforter and I'm warm, I'm blessed. Amen. And if God says, give that up and go here, I've got to be willing to do that. You know, you and I need to keep a loose grip on the things of this world. Keep a loose grip on your blessings. Don't let them become idols. And never let anything get between you and Jesus. So Paul's learned to count all that stuff as loss. He's made this decree here. We pick up in verse 9. Verse 9 is a theological treasure to us as New Testament Christians. He says, may I be found in him. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, We are in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, verse 9 has got a lot in it. Up until this point, man's justification before God, his ability to connect and commune with God was all about man keeping covenants that God brokered with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, God brokered covenants with his people. Now realize if you weren 't Jewish in the Old Testament, you were outside of covenant and you were outside of relationship with God. Everyone who wasn 't a Jew, one of god 's chosen was a Gentile, and the Gentiles were categorically lost. so understand these covenants that he had, even with his own people they, they had you know the Abrahamic covenant, they had the Mosaic law covenant they have these Covenants here that they have to keep, and it was all about man keeping the rules of the covenant. And based on his performance, he could have connection, communion, and fellowship with God. Now, you say, Well, that doesn't sound too bad. The only problem was, man couldn't keep any of the covenants, God could always keep his part. But we couldn't keep ours. Why? Because we're flawed by sin. And so sin would get in there and selfishness would get in there. Adam and Eve, all they had to do was not eat from one tree. Could they do it? You know, Abrahamic covenant, you just had to trust God and stay in fellowship with him and and, and do what he tells you to do. Could they do it? The law covenant under Moses, they had to keep the commandments and bring the sacrifices and there was a system. Could they do it? Man could never do it. And so that was the weakness of every covenant was not that it wasn't just not that it wasn't plausible. It's just that man's uh, intrinsic sinfulness made him unable to keep the covenant. So here man is trying to connect and commune with God. And up to this point, it's all performance based. and, And under the former covenant that Paul was under, you had to keep the law to have fellowship with God. Uh, to connect and commune. Now, Paul, you know, kept it legalistically in such a way that people would say, oh, he's blameless. But the truth be told, Paul was a sinner just like the rest of us. And he realized the magnitude of his sin when the shroud was lifted off and he realized that he needed a savior and he came to Jesus Christ on that Damascus road. Man would have to keep the law, the Ten Commandments, and there was very little grace in that covenant. You kept the law perfectly, or you were estranged from God. If you broke the rules, you had to bring a sacrifice to cover your sin. Could you imagine if you had to kill an animal, bring it to the priest, bring the prescribed sacrifice every time you sinned? You say, well, I, I just wouldn't do that. Then there would be a wall between you and God. Have you ever loved someone, yet there had something had come between you? Are there any married people here today? You know, when something happens and there's, and, and then, you know, it's awkward and you don't want to talk about it, you just like to forget about it, but it's the proverbial elephant in the room. You have got to address that offense before you can clear the air and have fellowship again. Come on, this is going to get some of you to sleep in the house tonight. To, She's going to let you back in. Just, just hang with me a little bit. I'm trying to help you. So here's this offense between us and God, and say, so, well, I'm not bringing the sacrifice. You had to, it would restore the connection. You know, and I always laugh about the Old Testament sacrificial system because you had to bring certain sacrifices for certain sins to the priest. You know, and people could see you walking up to the temple with what you were bringing. Oh, boy, here comes Leonardo again. Two bulls. What did he do this time? Could you imagine if people could see that? That would straighten some of us out, just the embarrassment of it all. But this was the system that Paul was in. Now realize, he's counted all his achievements, his success in that system as worthless, and he's traded them to know Christ. And you've got to realize what a huge shift this was for Paul as a Jewish man. For centuries, the Jews had kept this legalistic system at the instruction of Almighty God. They didn't come up with this themselves. God told them to do it. God said, keep the rules, be legalistic, don't associate with the heathens, don't eat with Gentiles, don't intermarry with these crazy people. God cloistered them, and he caused them to become, excuse me, rule keepers, legalistic rule keepers, and then all of a sudden, God's saying, no, there's a shift taking place here, and Paul makes the shift. This is huge, and we've got to look at it here. The, The fact that he makes these statements here in verses 9 and 10 are showing that you know not only has his heart changed, but his mind's changed. His whole uh, the paradigm of his spiritual spiritual experience has changed, and now he doesn't want to operate legalistically anymore. He doesn't want to be a rule keeper anymore, even though the Lord had commanded his people to do that for centuries. The shift goes like this: for the Jews, it was works, works and works. And when you were done with works, you did more works. And you were done with the works, you would keep the rules. And it always was works, and it always would be works. Boom! Jesus comes. He dies. They put him in the tomb. He rises again. Now it's no longer works. Now it's grace. And that grace is activated by faith. And it's not works. Works will never justify anyone anymore ever again. And the Jews are going, what? What? We're going to throw away centuries of legalism and in a heartbeat, turn on a dime and make a shift and it's not about keeping rules anymore. It's about grace. Do you realize what a deep work God has to do in a person's life for them to make that mental, that emotional, that spiritual shift? Here's Paul, you know, he goes from persecuting the church to building the church. He goes from walking in his totally legalistic Pharisee to be in a person who preaches grace to the gentiles. Just an awesome shift that takes place. Now, listen to me, for the new testament new testament believer, that's us. We've been born in the new covenant. Anybody old enough to be there when before Jesus was crucified? No. Some of you look good but not that good. You know, we we were all born into this new covenant. So, listen to me, for new testament Christians to be legalistic is absolute foolishness. Well, you know, we're saved by grace and we have, you know, this, but it's got, got to be about rules and it's got to be about rule keeping and we have our denominational things and you've got to do this and you've got to sound like this and you've got to read this version of the Bible and you've got to cut your hair really short and you've got to wear a tie on Sunday. Legalism. Why do we get saved by grace and then act legalistically? I'll tell you why, because it's a religious spirit that wants to get on us to, to choke out the blessing of liberty that comes from Grace. It's not God's idea. It's the devil's idea. The devil hates that you have liberty. He hates that you're forgiven. He hates that you're restored. He hates that you have grace. He hates you have potential. He hates that you have an anointing. And he wants to rob it from you by putting rules on you and regulations on you that God never put on you. Man, I feel like dropping the mic and going home. That's all you get this morning. It's all downhill from here. But the shift is made in Paul, and and here we are as New Testament believers, and, you know, if we're still trying to approach God and impress God and appease God with our resume of good things that we do, can we please stop? Stop it. You know, I I, I can smell that religious spirit on people, and, and it's just, I mean, it's not a good smell. It's a stench in the nostrils of God because it's, it's a slap in the face to Jesus and the cross and forgiveness. If we're trying to impress God with our, our works and our you know, all the things we've done, not only is it futile and a lost cause, but it's embarrassing, and here's why. Because Hebrews 8, 6 through 7 tells us that the rules have forever changed. Listen to Hebrews 8, 6, and 7. But now he... Has obtained a more excellent ministry by as he has also the mediator, talking about Jesus, he is the mediator of a better covenant. So those old covenants the law covenant now we have a better covenant which he has enacted upon better promises for if the first covenant had been faultless there would not have been an occasion sought for a second covenant so basically hebrews is saying here that the the, the old covenant is eclipsed by the new covenant it's a new and a better covenant built on better promises built on grace instead of legalism amen Now man's weakness can't short-circuit the covenant because I'm unable to keep the law. No, there is no law anymore. I'm under grace. God has poured it out and forgiven me and, and covered my sin and taken my sin away and given me what I could never earn. Come on this morning. Woo! So the deal has changed. The rules have changed. And forever there has been this shift, and Paul realized it, and he flows with it, and the fruit that comes from his redeemed life is amazing. We've got to understand that wherever there are rules, people will argue about them. Do you ever notice how, I mean, wherever there's rules, people are going to argue over the rules. I grew up watching baseball where sometimes the best part of the game was the manager coming out and arguing with the umpire. Come on, anybody remember that? You know, where, you know, Billy Martin would fly out of the dugout, and he'd start kicking dirt over the plate. He's like, and then then they're nose to nose. and And good thing they didn't zero in, so you couldn't tell what they were saying. But it wasn't, you know, how's the wife and kids doing? Yeah, we get together for a barbecue. No, they're going at each other. Over the rules, and it's just amazing. You see it in sports, and then what will have the umpire? like, you're out of here, and Billy kicks some more dirt and go into the dugout. People always fight over the rules. They fight over the rules in sport. People argue over the rules on the roadways. You know, people don't, you know, when to go, when to not go, how to, how to negotiate a traffic circle. These traffic circles, Scotty, these traffic circles out here, I I just want to like put a big iron I-beam on my bumper and just pick people up and push them right into McDonald's. Get out of the way. You don't stop in a traffic circle. Amen. That that might be the most exciting thing we hear on Sunday morning. But it's like people are arguing. How, how do you merge? And, uh, you know, the people don't know how to merge. And, they're ma- and it's just crazy. And they argue about the traffic rules. My wife knows all the traffic rules. I'm like, if my truck's bigger than your Prius, I go first. That's the rule. So she's like, no, that's the right-of-way. And you didn't tell. People argue. How about board games? How many times I've seen families argue, we go camping, the family next to us, they're playing a board game, the next thing you know is a fist fight. Somebody's got, you know, this little square piece of paper out of the Milton Bradley box and they're like, (laughs) you're an idiot, you're a jerk, oh, family get together. Wherever there's rules, people argue over them. That's why we've got to get rid of the legalism, we've got to set the rules, yes, we honor the commandments, yes, we honor the word of God but we're under grace. Please learn to enjoy grace. Let your brothers and sisters enjoy grace. People don't have to like everything you like and do everything the way you do it. Amen. There's room for other things. You know, well, this church, they don't believe in this and they don't do that. And they don't worship like, Hey, you know, there's more than one flavor than vanilla. Aren't you happy when you go to the ice cream place? They don't say, what, what kind of vanilla would you like? I don't want vanilla at all. I want want stuff with enough chocolate in it to put me in a coma for three hours. Give me some Rocky Road, Double Fudge, Triple Super Destruction. No, I don't want vanilla. So there. Man, thank God for variety. Thank God for liberty. But enjoy your liberty. Enjoy grace. And let other people in the body of Christ enjoy it as well. We're not under the old system. Paul made the shift. Now, in verse 10, he shows us how to approach God in light of this new covenant. Verse 10 is just amazing as well. That I may know him. That's a good start. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Mm, If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's unpack verse 10 first. Paul's made the big shift here. He's exchanged that drivenness and that legalism for a yearning to have intimacy with God. See, as New Testament Christians, we we shouldn't yearn to keep rules and to hit spiritual benchmarks and to operate in the most gifts and to memorize the most scripture. We should revel in knowing Jesus. In fact, if we want to do works, if we're insistent on doing works, they don't save us. But here's four things we can work on from verse 10. Number one, we can work on getting to know Jesus better. The older I get, the more I realize, Pastor Mike, my time is short. And I want to invest myself not on building an empire or building a legacy. People who talk about legacy freak me out. Oh, my legacy, my legacy. The only person who mentioned legacy in the scripture was Saul. Saul said, what about my legacy? As David was about to eclipse him because David was a man after God's own heart and Saul was the people's choice. My legacy, my legacy. Shut up about your legacy. And forget about, well, how are people going to remember me? What are they going to think of me? Fall in love with Jesus. Get to know Jesus. Do the call of God on your life. Amen. Forget about your legacy, your empire, your accomplishments. Ugh. So if we want to do works, we can work on getting to know Jesus. Now, the first gem of First 10 is this. The implication is that we can, in fact, know him. He says what? That I may know him. And you know what? You and I may know him now. But this is not a given. Uh, you know... Uh, The fact that we can know him now is a gift, and it's what Jesus accomplished with the resurrection. When he died on that cross and rose from the dead, he made the Father knowable. Why? Because he broke the barrier of sin down that separated us, and now we can commune with the Father. We can know Jesus. We can know the Father. We can know the Holy Spirit. You know, the thing is, we have got to get to know every part of the Godhead. If we don't know the Holy Spirit, we can't hear the still small voice, we're going to mess up a lot of things that don't need to get messed up in our lives. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is just going, stop! We're chugging ahead, and he, sometimes he says no, and there's times where we hear stop, we hear no, we, we hear him speak to us in that still, small voice. How many times have you heard God, but then you went and did what you were going to do anyway? Yeah, let me raise two hands so you don't feel so bad. And then you think, man, I, 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 I heard, wasn't that him? Yeah, that must have, wow, I missed it. Darn, what's the point of that drill? So next time we hear it, and we don't miss it, Amen. I guarantee we can all come up here and testify, yeah, God was telling me, but I wasn't listening. And hopefully you didn't marry it, but, uh, you know. (laughs) But if you did, you're in it now, so don't. Till death do you part. But I know people who will flat out tell me, you know, what? God told me not to. God told me not to get in this relationship. God told me not to form this business, get into this deal. And I did it. We've got to learn to hear the Holy Spirit. We've got to learn to know the Father and the Son. And it is possible that I may know him well. Guess what? Because of what Jesus has done, we can know him now. Now, in the Old Testament, knowing God was a dicey proposition. It was only for a a select few, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. The high priest himself was only allowed to go into the presence of God once a year. I mean, he was the high priest, so understand, knowing God in the Old Testament was a dicey proposition. And if you went into God's presence or you, you tried to connect with him and there was sin or unholiness, you could be dead. You know, they used to put bells on the high priest's uh, ephod at the end, so when he moved around, he would jingle. You know, and they put a rope on his leg, too, because if the jingling stopped... There was sin in the priest, and they would pull him out. They, well, why the rope? Because if you went in, you'd die too. You weren't the high priest. Israel experienced things like this. So how do you think it went over with the people knowing God? They're like, I don't want to know God. You know God for me. You send a priest in, you let me know what God said. Now, in the New Testament, that don't work. We've all got to know him. We've all got to commune with him. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Amen. We don't need bells and we don't need ropes because we're covered by the blood of the lamb and we're righteous in the sight of God because of the blood of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, knowing God was a dicey proposition. But listen to me, uh, in the New Testament, it's all changed. And there again, the rules have changed. When Jesus died on the cross, something very incredible happened. And it's chronicled in Matthew 27:50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, listen to verse 51. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. More stuff happened. Graves opened and the righteous dead came out and they were resurrected too as a first fruits of the resurrection. But understand something, the veil was torn. You say, what's that all about? That veil was in the temple, and it covered the Holy of Holies. And it covered the Holy of Holies from the people of God. Only the priest, once a year, was allowed to go in. But God said, no more. Now because of this new covenant, because of the blood, because of redemption through Jesus, the veil's torn, and my presence is open to my people that we can commune and connect and know God. Wow, what a privilege we have. What an honor it is to know him. And we may know him. And you can have as much of Jesus as you want. And you can have as much of the presence of God as you want. Woo! A persistent pursuit of him, a sincere pursuit of him will result in him revealing him to us that I may know him, Paul says. Number two, not only should we work on getting to know Jesus, we should work on walking in resurrection power. The things that drove us and empowered us before we came to Jesus were things like ambition and pride and lust a need to succeed, a need to appease the demands of others? How many people were driven just to please their parents or to please a teacher or to please a mentor, and God never told them to do that? How many people are driven by lust to, you know, to acquire and to obtain and to create an empire? And all of these drivennesses that uh, dr- drive men, once we come to Christ, those things have to melt away. Now, no longer are we driven to do any of these things, but now, in place of drivenness, we have a yearning to know God intimately, to know Him as Father. Come on, get this today. Get this. Are you driven? Are you trying to accomplish things? Are you like Saul worried about legacy? It, that's all dung. Throw it out, cast it aside. Get to know Jesus. Get to uh, get in the secret place and know it, and learn to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Walking in resurrection power, Amen. Once you and I got saved, we got hooked up to a different power source, Amen. We'll hook up to the Holy Ghost. The Scripture says it like this: The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. It'll quicken your mortal body. Woo! I don't know about you, I'm plugged in. I'm switched on. I got the power of God in me, amen. I have an anointing that comes from him and spiritual gifts that come from him and a calling that comes from him. And so do you, and you're plugged in too. So learn to walk in resurrection power. We don't serve a dead God today. He's alive. He's alive in us. When resurrection power moves in us, it will always display itself in the preaching of the gospel. Look in here, it says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Uh, so when we're filled with the power of God, it's not, you know, to, to make us famous or to make us wealthy. You know, we get, we get sidetracked by this stuff in Christianity. And we've all heard about the prosperity gospel and stuff. Yeah, God wants you blessed and he wants to give you blessings and he doesn't want you poor and he wants to heal your body but that's not the point of serving God. And once it becomes the point of serving God, it's a different gospel. Because, you know, all that stuff is the icing on the cake, but it's not the cake. When you make it the cake, then you've missed Jesus and you're you're living a different gospel. But resurrection power comes on us so we can do the things of God. Listen to what Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power. And that the Holy Ghost is come upon you and you shall be my witnesses unto both Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So why when the Holy Spirit was pouring out in the upper room and he sat upon the people and the tongues of fire hit them, they began to speak in other tongues. What was that all about? So they could start a church, so they could start a movement, so they could start a ministry. No, so they could be empowered to preach the gospel to the lost. You say, why doesn't God pour out his power like he did back in the book of Acts? I believe it's because most people would misuse it. And when he can find some people that he can empower uh, and they'll use it for the exploits of the ministry and the things of the kingdom and to preach the gospel, then he can pour his power out on this generation like he wants to. Uh, Getting a little quiet now. God, can I handle the power? God, why won't you empower me? Because, you know... You're too undisciplined, you're too immature, you're too selfish, you're too carnal. Ouch. That's why when we have a worship song like this and we're singing songs and, you know, pour me out, Lord God, I want, I want, to, I want to be poured out. That, that's the right heart. God, change our hearts so that you can pour out your spirit upon us like you want to and help us to use it to be witnesses preach the gospel, the resurrection power works in us to preach the gospel and do the works of the ministry. The power, the gospel itself is power. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and then the Greek. See that the power of God linked to the preaching of the gospel. The gospel itself is power. I I hope you're seeing the common threads here. God, I want the power of God in my life. Amen. The purpose to do the will of God and preach the gospel to all men. Amen. God, give us boldness to preach the gospel in such a way that we need your empowerment. So it's not works that save us, but if we're going to work on anything, we should work on getting to know Jesus better, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that resurrection power number three, this was a real crowd pleaser in the first service in embracing redemptive suffering. There he goes. He said the S word in church again. Suffering. No, nobody likes suffering, but the truth is it's part of the package. We like the redemption. We like the forgiveness of sin. We like the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But then, you know, we read the scripture like this, and, you know, we're like, oh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And the power of his resurrection. <laughs> Being conformed to his death. Oh, I don't know about that either, but it's going downhill, Pastor, really fast. Maybe this should have only been two points. But the text makes four points. (laughs) And the third one is that we have to embrace suffering. Now, let me just talk about suffering a little bit. There's two types of suffering. There's redemptive suffering and there's foolish suffering. Redemptive suffering is suffering that God asks us to endure, and it redeems us, and it it makes us closer to Jesus, and it pleases God. That's redemptive suffering. Foolish suffering is when we do stupid things make stupid choices and stupid mistakes, and we suffer because of it. Now, the saddest thing is to watch a person who is enduring foolish suffering pretending like it's redemptive. Some people didn't get that. Oh, I'm just, you know, I did this, and I made this, and I did, and then it's really hard now. Well, what did God tell you to do? Not to do it. <laughs> That's foolish suffering. We got to stop that. We got to stop doing the things we know we shouldn't do. We got to stop giving ourselves a license to sin. Well, you know, God will just tolerate that little one, or I'll just do it once in a while. or You know, no, we got to stop. That's going to bring foolish suffering. Now, foolish suffering has got to go out of our life. It's part of what's in the dung heap that needs to be tossed out. But redemptive suffering, we can't toss out. God expects us to suffer. Well, I don't want to suffer. Well, then you don't want to know Jesus because Jesus suffered. Now, how are we supposed to embrace redemptive suffering? It's real easy. Carry your cross. This fellowship with Jesus we get when we choose to carry the cross he made for us. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and 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 will not come after me cannot be my disciple. So God's saying the the prerequisite to discipleship is cross-carrying and the prerequisite to knowing me is being a disciple. So if you want to be a casual seeker Christian who stands on the outside and looks in, then yeah, you, you don't have to be a disciple and you don't have to carry a cross. But if you want to know him, If you want to commune with him, if you want to be close to him, John laid on Jesus' breast when they reclined at the table and he could hear the heartbeat of the Almighty. Wow. I want to be close. Have any of us come this far to stand on the outside and watch? Or do we want to be in the inner circle, close to Jesus, to hear his heartbeat, to do his will, to fellowship with him, not to just to commune with him, but to fellowship with him in his suffering, then we've got to carry our cross. You say, well, carrying a cross can be hard. His grace is sufficient for us. Carrying a cross will will rip and tear up my flesh. That's a good thing. Our flesh needs to be crucified. Carrying a cross will ostracize me from the rest of the world. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. The cross does a good work in us. So we embrace redemptive suffering. We carry our cross, and we get to fellowship with Jesus in his suffering. You know, what does your commitment to Jesus Christ cost you? Do you realize some of our brothers and sisters who live in China, in Middle Eastern places, in North Korea, do you realize that their commitment to Jesus Christ has cost them everything? In the West here, what does it cost us to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. Has it ever cost you friends? Have you lost friends when you came to Jesus? I did. I got no friends. How about opportunities? How about promotions? How about acceptance? How about family? There are people in all of our families that I've heard, I've heard it before. People said to us, you're, you're in a cult now. They don't want nothing to do with you. You're crazy. Come back to the cult we're in. So it, it's cost us little things here, promotions, acceptance, family, maybe some social status. And you know what I say? If your faith has cost you any of th- those things, you know what I say? Good. Not all. Aw. Aw, you poor baby. No. Good, because the Bible says, blessed are we to suffer in the name of the Lord. Because when we suffer for Jesus' name, when it's redemptive suffering, when it's righteous suffering, there is an eternal reward attached to that. Nothing we suffer now will not be rewarded in heaven, will not bring glory to our Father. So if we've lost relationships, if we've lost family members, if we have children that don't speak to us anymore, if we've been cut off, if we've lost opportunities, if people say things about us, good. There's a reward in eternity for everyone who will embrace the suffering, carry their cross and glorify Jesus. The last thing I want to say here is number four, the fourth thing we should work on. We should get to know Jesus. We should walk in resurrection power. We should embrace redemptive suffering. And number four, we should lay our lives down. Look what it says here that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Listen, being conformed to his death. That's powerful there. We've got to lay our lives down. Carrying the cross will help us to do that. But, you know, you might say, why do we have to lay our lives down? We're, We're forgiven. We're saved. We're on our way to heaven. None of these works are going to save us. Why do we have to lay our lives down? Why can't we just live our lives? Anybody want to be honest in church? Have you ever thought this? Come on, I'm saved. You did all the hard work. I'm forgiven. Can I just have a little fun now? can can we just live our lives? Can't we just enjoy them? Can't we just try to pack as much pleasure, fun, and excitement into our lives and as much achievement as we can? And Matthew 16, 25 answers the question. It says, forever who wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, in living our lives to the hilt in and it's stuffing the pleasure and the experiences and the fun in and making that first in our lives, that's going to cost us life. Because we've got to lose our life for his sake to find our life. See, there's no peace and there's no joy and there's no, you know, fulfillment in all those things I just listed. If you look at people who live totally for themselves, do whatever they want, all about pleasure, all about comfort, they are some of the most miserable people categorically that you will ever see. Some of the richest people you know who have privilege and can have anything that the world has to offer, they are the most empty people that you will ever meet. And those of us who are called by God and answer the call and live for Jesus and toss away all the entanglements and distractions of this life just to live for him, are going to have peace and joy and fulfillment and all the blessings that are attached, not only in this life, but for eternity. Lay your life down for Jesus, amen? Do what he's called you to do. Put him first. I'm not saying you can't have any fun. I'm not saying you can't do anything. You know, learn to enjoy life, amen? Sometimes, man, you look shell-shocked out there right now. you <laughs> Now I don't know what to do. If the sun rises tomorrow and I like it, did I just sin? No, you can enjoy life. You can enjoy your life. But don't put that first before serving Jesus. Don't throw your cross away to pursue your bucket list. I don't have a bucket list. I don't even have a bucket. I'm just going to do what God's called me to do until he's done with me. And then I'm going to go home to be with him. So we, we're not saved by works, but we should work on getting to know Jesus better. We should work on walking in resurrection power. Remember, you're plugged in. You're switched on. You're anointed for a purpose to preach the gospel and to win souls and to take people with you to heaven. Amen. Embrace redemptive suffering, carry your cross, and lay your life down. While that doesn't sound fun, all of that will result in us experiencing the joy that Paul is experiencing while he was in chains, bubbling over with joy on his way to martyrdom, yet filled with love and purpose and hope in the Lord. Let's bow our heads today, Father. Just thank you for this word, and it's meat, Lord. It's not an easy word, and. It's not happy, it's not clappy, but it puts real spiritual demand on us. And, Father, I thank you for those here this morning that were willing to hear truth. So many in our generation don't have the ears to hear truth. But, Lord, you've called us to be connected to you, to get to know you better, to carry our cross, to lay our lives down. Father, we hear that call today and realize it's not a death sentence, but it results in life and peace and uh, productivity and spiritual rewards. And so we embrace it, Lord. We trust you. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your children that we're not under the law anymore, that we're under grace. I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters that's tormented by legalism, that's tormented by religious rule-keeping. Maybe they had parents that put so many demands on them and never affirmed them. Maybe they work for people who are never satisfied. But, God, I pray that they would find their peace in you and be able to enjoy being your sons and your daughters. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.